Well, this is the this is the final talk in our teaching series, the story of God, where we've been tracing the narrative arc of the entire Bible. This is. Uh, the sixth week of our teaching series. And contrary to what we might think, the Bible is not our basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is not a holy encyclopedia. The, the, the Bible is not a book even. The Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. This is kind of the working definition of the Bible that we've been, we've been uh, talking about since January, really, since our first teaching series of the year. And uh, what's important about this is if we can't read the Bible and come to see Jesus as the climax of one great story, then... Uh, we've missed the point entirely. Now, I know many of you, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I know many of you are tracking with us and you're doing the daily readings. And when it comes to the land being assigned to various members of a family and it just goes on ad nauseum, it, it's so hard. Let's be honest. It is so hard to read, let alone see that this has anything whatsoever to do with Jesus. But if we hold on and we hang in there and we stay with the story, it continues to emerge. In fact, maybe you've begun to see Jesus in parts of the story so far in the Old Testament that you hadn't really seen before. Well, that's the idea here. That's the whole reason why our church is committed this year to reading the Bible cover to cover together, is to immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus. Because the story you live in is the story you live out. That's where we're at. So I want to talk today in this final talk about the end of the beginning. And I want to talk with you today as a family. And as I was preparing for this morning, um, I, I just felt like it was really important that you would let me just talk to you um, as if we are family, because in a spiritual sense, we absolutely, definitely are. And uh, so I don't want to preach at you today. I want to invite you in to some of what um, I think God has been inviting me in. And I think by virtue of, of where we're at as a community, probably inviting our church in. So can I talk to you as family today? Can we do that? Thank you. So um, family is able to sometimes talk about difficult things. And some of, you, some of you know that last Monday a driver ran a red light in Park Slope. Are you familiar with the story? Many of you, I know, are. And the driver struck two young mothers and their children in the crosswalk, and both those children died, ages one and four, as a result of their injuries. So those families are members of our sister church in Park Slope, Trinity Grace Church, Park Slope. It's just been a sad week. And I thought I could, you know, prepare this and just kind of read the notes I wrote and sort of move past it without feeling that, um, that pain. But I, I think this is sort of maybe where God has us. It's, 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 I think we've all had to face this to some degree, whether it's about that situation or something else. But what do we do with that? I mean, what do we do with that pain 
What do we do with that sadness and that loss? What do you do with any of the pain? What do you do with any of the brokenness that you see no matter where you look? I mean, what do you do with the racist words and behavior that has been said and directed towards many of you in your lifetime? What do you do with the the bigotry that fuels a system that protects those who are in and opposes those who are out? What do you do with the trafficking of human beings for the pleasure of sick men or the objectification or the inequality or the abuse that many of you face as women every day in your work and at school and in the city? What do you do with the rejection you faced from your own family because of the choices you've made or because of your faith in Jesus? Or what do you do with leukemia or miscarriages or children who need heart surgery, which is just some of the, what members in our faith family, this faith family, are facing right now? What do you do? What do you do with the nightmare of pain and brokenness that we wake up in every single day? I I don't know what the rest of the world does. I've been a follower of Jesus for a really long time. But I can tell you this, that as Christians, we are not without hope. I think that's the message this morning. The, The Apostle Paul was dealing and was seeing so much going on in his own day, so much pain, so much brokenness, and he, out of that, he penned these words to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, Paul, what is he doing? He's referring back to the beginning of our story in Genesis, the very first act where the spirit of God is hovering over the darkness, over the, the vast, the chaos, the, the, and, and God speaks, let there be light. He says, that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light, the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, this knowledge of the glory of God and displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We have hope, and his name is Jesus. We're hard-pressed, yeah, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. How? How is any of that possible? How can we withstand and not be alone? How can we hold on? How can we withstand all that's happening and all the pressure and all of the pain? And the answer is because it's through all of the darkness, the light of the face of Jesus shines through. And for those of us who belong to Christ, that light isn't just something external. Paul says that light shines from within us, illuminating all of what we experience and what we feel in our own lives. Jesus is our hope, and the story we live in, this story, the story of God, leads us straight to him, straight to Jesus. What story are you living in? I mean, what story are you living in this morning? Our story begins with God. 
In fact, it begins with those words, in the beginning, God. And out of nothing, God makes something. You know, this is the great question. And it's the great dilemma of modern science. Nobody can answer how everything came from nothing. And that's not our story. Our story isn't that everything came from nothing. Our story is that everything came from something, or more specifically, someone. Because in the beginning, God. Out of nothing, God makes something, something beautiful, something good. And in the middle of all that God made good sat a garden. And in the garden, humanity was fully alive, flourishing in every way, along with all of creation, all together under the shalom or the peace, the unifying collective peace of God. It was over all things. But there was a monster in the garden who deceived man and woman, convincing them that God was holding out on them, that God hadn't been forthright or he hadn't been completely honest with them about the world and the way it works. And having been deceived by the serpent, humanity sinned against God, setting off the decreation of all that God had made good. And where there had been peace, there was now enmity. And where there had been life, there was now death. And where there had been blessing, there was now a curse over everything. Adam and Eve's sin had driven them from uh, far away from God's presence. But this is the beauty of our story. As we continue to read, we see that God doesn't give up on humanity. God eventually chose one man and promised to restore blessing to the whole world through this one man's family. But Abraham and his descendants, they continue to fall in all of the same ways that Adam and Eve fell and failed in the garden. And generation after generation could not, or at least would not, keep the condition of the promise of the covenant that God had made with this family. And just when it seemed that all was lost, God did the unthinkable. God wrapped himself in human flesh. And he moved into the pain of the world. God wraps himself in human flesh. In the person of Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, the man and the family through whom God had promised at first to bless the world through. And where all humanity had failed, including Abraham and his family, Jesus succeeded. And what happens is Jesus takes on all of our sin. He takes on all of our shame. It's all put upon him. He bore it upon himself, the consequences of our rebellion. He took it on, though he had broken no laws, though he had not rebelled, though he had not been deceived. He took it all on himself. And with the consequences of our sin and our rebellion on his shoulders, Jesus died. He was put to death on a cross punished for the sins that we had committed. But the story doesn't stop there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death itself. Jesus victorious over sin and death. Christus victor on our behalf and the behalf, um, and the behalf of the whole world. Jesus undoes the curse that the whole world fell under when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Jesus reverses it. And where Adam and Eve launched the decreation of all that God made good, Jesus launches a new recreation 
of all that was broken in Adam and Eve's rebellion. Jesus suffered and he died the death that we were destined to die so that we could live the life that Jesus was destined to live. Isn't that powerful? But before Jesus ascended to God the Father, Jesus gave to his followers the gift of the Holy Spirit. More accurately, he promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now filled with the Holy Spirit, the dead in Christ are raised to new life, an army under God's recreation for the restoration and the renewal of all things, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is our story. And now you are caught up on the teaching series. You're welcome. This story is, is, is an amazing story. We call this story the gospel, which means, as many of you know, it means good news. The, the, the original word is the euangelion, which wasn't, you know, wasn't um, relegated, that term, to the church or to religious people, but it was, it was a, a, a proclamation of a, of a victory elsewhere. So someone would come in after a great victory um, pronouncing the euangelion of what had happened on the battlefield. And this is, this is what the Bible calls the story. This is our story of a great victory won elsewhere. But that the results of that victory, we all fall underneath. It's the good news. And it's this good news or this story that I think gives us context to the first question I asked this morning, which is what do we do with our pain? It's this story that I just shared with you that gives, us, gives context to our pain, but doesn't leave us there. I, I think this is important. Our story doesn't avoid pain. And, and the Christian story doesn't invite us to ignore or pretend that we haven't experienced pain or that it's not there. Our story gives context to our pain. Our story creates space for us to come face to face with, to confront the brokenness that we experience in certain circumstances and certain times more than others. It creates the space necessary to face the pain, to process the pain, to grieve our pain. I have a little confession of, of my own to make. Um, we're reading now in the, the book of Joshua, and I think it was Joshua 13 at the end is where God says to Joshua, he tell, God tells Joshua that he's getting really old. Do you remember this? And that there was still a lot of work to do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. That's, I feel like Joshua. I could so relate. I feel, though I'm 45, I swear, I, I feel like I'm 95. And there's so much still to be done in my life. And uh, I've started getting these weird injuries. It's been, a, it's been a long season, okay, this last year. <laughs> it's been a long season. And uh, many of you know that several weeks ago, I got an old person thing called shingles. That's, I was shocked to find out how many of you people younger than me have had shingles in the past. So we're all under the same sort of curse or whatever. But I'd, I'd only heard of old people getting it. And so when I got it, I thought, oh my gosh. My birth certificate's wrong. Something's, something's messed up here. Um, and I've been dealing with all these other weird injuries. And if you're like me, 
again, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but many of you in this room are like me. You're optimistic. You have a good outlook on life. You just, even when things are terrible, you'll, you might share that things are terrible, but you always have to wrap it in a nice, neat little bow at the end, right? But things are really looking up, even if they're not. <laughs> There's a light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's a train bearing down on you. It's just sort of like silver linings everywhere. And, uh, and because of that, I think there's some stuff I've just avoided. I've avoided some pain. And I've minimized it. I've tried to go around it. I've ignored it. But my body hasn't. And so my body has just absorbed stuff that normal, healthy people like many of you just process. And you just deal with. And you move on. But this sort of stuff's just been building up in me. Now I had to go to the doctor this past week for some shoulder pain I've been having, and I've always just assumed the worst now. My optimism is completely gone. And, uh, and, and it was interesting when I was uh, speaking with the doctor. He said, look, you, you have a situation right now where you have pain in your shoulder. And that pain in your shoulder is sending a signal to your brain that says, stop doing what you're doing to cause the pain. And in my case, it's like picking up a coffee mug. And so, so my brain is saying, don't do that to the muscles and everything that controls that movement. And instead, another muscle has taken over to do the work that should be done by this other group of muscles. So I have pain, my brain's saying don't do it, my body is now avoiding doing it, but by doing that, now it's creating another problem. That's exactly how it works. Pain leads to avoidance, and that avoidance creates misuse, and then that misuse, guess where that leads? Pain. It's a cycle. It's exactly where I'm at with my shoulder. So the doctor prescribed some pain medication. It's not the fun kind. Um, so I'm just normal, like this is just me. Um, not any more relaxed than I wish I, anyway. Thank you, Vicki, um, because I know you feel my pain. We were talking about this before the service. So the idea is like, let's get rid of the pain, deal with the pain actually. Let's deal with the pain so you can get back to a proper usage through physical therapy so that you can get out of the cycle of pain. And I just want to say, if you've been in the church for any length of time and somehow you inferred from what the preacher said or your Sunday school teacher or your parents said that somehow you have to pretend that there isn't pain, that is not our story. And so if you're in pain today... The worst thing you can do is avoid it because that's going to create some misuse and it's going to keep you in a cycle of pain. Our story gives context for pain. Do you see that? That when Adam and Eve sinned, there was pain, there was separation, there was a brokenness, so much so that God said, I've got to intervene and do something on behalf of these people. And instead of avoiding the pain, God himself, so if you get mad at God for judging sin so harshly, just remember that God put on flesh and paid the penalty for that sin for us. He enters the pain, which gives us context 
for our own pain. And this is, I think, what makes our story so great. This is why we call the story of the gospel good news. It gives context to our pain, but it doesn't leave us without hope in the world. And I want to make sure we get to that point. That we are not without hope in the world. Future hope creates a possibility of moving forward out of a place of pain into a place of shalom. That is possible for you today. And it's possible for me. So Jesus had all of these followers. You you might remember that there there were the crowds that kind of showed up wherever Jesus went. But the, and they were sort of interested in what was happening. But then Jesus actually had followers. And there's this group of 72 followers that's mentioned in this, in, in this story. And they probably had planning center to keep track of those 72. Oh, good, we've got a, we're up to 72 now, great. And so they're reporting, uh, oftentimes in the scriptures, about these 72. They were, really, they were real followers of Jesus. But then within the 72, we know more famously the 12. A lot of the 72, we don't know their names, but we know the names of the 12 disciples that Jesus called out of their old life into following him. And within that group of 12, there were three, Peter, James, and John, and these, these guys were like the buddies of, of Jesus. They were like his closest confidants. But there was one called the Beloved, and his name was John. He was one of the three. And John will end up writing after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and after the experience, after he experiences with all the disciples and everyone else, the Holy Spirit coming, John would write the gospel of John, one of four gospels, one of four stories, good news about Jesus. He would, write, he would go to write that. But John just wouldn't write that. He would, also, he would also write some letters, and John just wouldn't write the gospel and the letters, but he would also write the very final book of the Bible, Revelation. So in the first century, one of Jesus' closest followers, John, he's exiled on an island. And the name of that island is Patmos. And it's on this island where John receives this vision or John receives this revelation. And I know that a lot of us have grown up in churches that teach us that revelation is all this coded language about how the world is going to end. And that's fine if you believe that. The problem with that is that's new theology. I mean, that's only like 100 years old. Up until the last 100 years, nobody believed that about the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation, though it has, uh, the, the book of Revelation, let me back up. The book of Revelation was primarily about the, the kingdom of God and how it, how it was coming in the day and age in which John was writing the book of Revelation. And so the coded language about dragons and all that stuff is primarily about Rome. And uh, that's primarily what the story of Revelation is about. But then there's also a part of what John writes in Revelation that is about the end of our story. So we've approached in this teaching series the story of God unfolding as a series of acts. And I've mentioned this in the series before as well. You can break the story down in multiple ways, but uh, the way we're approaching the teaching series was to look at Act 1, which is creation, and then the fall in Act 2, and then Abraham in Act 3, and then Jesus in Act 4, and then the Holy Spirit in the church in Act 5 last week, and then this week is, is Act 5. And this is really about, this is the final act. This is the end of the story 
And so if we turn to Revelation 21 and 22, we see that it paints a picture of where the story is going. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I actually want to invite you to turn to Revelation 22. I'm just going to read five verses. To see where the story goes from here. In essence, if you think of the story of God unfolding on a timeline, we are in that fifth and final, or that fifth act, sort of the penultimate act. The second to last movement of the story, we are in that time. That's a time that Jesus ushered in. So when people say we're in the last days, that's true, and we've been in the last days since Jesus came. We're in this we're in this movement where now everything else we are either currently experiencing in our own lives or we're looking back as a part of our story historically. But Revelation 21 and 22 is about what's coming. It's about where we're going. It's about what we have to look forward to. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Some of that was just, I was like trying to give you time to follow, find the thing. Okay, cool. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. You remember the tree of life, right? Because that's at the beginning of our story. And it's in the garden. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there, will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Where is the story going? Well, if you remember, our story begins in a garden. And in the garden is this same tree of life. But then our story ends in a garden city. And so if we imagine that this is the same tree of life that we see at the beginning of the story in the book of Revelation, then we recognize that around this tree sat the garden in the beginning. And now the tree is still there, but that garden is now a garden city, an entire civilization, a society, a world grown up around that garden. And we see in John's vision in Revelation that the curse that we see in Genesis 3 has been completely undone by Jesus who no longer is on a cross and no longer in a grave, but now he's seated on a throne. And from his throne flows the water of life causing the flourishing of the city and all who live in it. And again, we know that the new garden city is on the side of the original garden because the same tree is at its center, the tree of life. And what I love about where the story is heading is John sees fit to report in his vision that we eat the fruit of this tree. You see what's happening? We eat the fruit of the tree. 
and we are healed by its leaves. What God made good and what humanity messed up, God has made good again. And he's made it good for you and for me. Did you know that you were written into the Bible? You are in the story. This is about you. This is about where you will be and what you will experience and what you will consume and how you will be healed and how you will be nourished and how you will return to a place of human flourishing by God's grace through Jesus. No more night. No more curse. Only life in the light of Jesus. So John's revelation is painting a picture of a future reality where all the wrongs are made right, where evil is eradicated, where heaven and earth are united and humanity can rule the world in the love and in the power of God. Now, I want to apologize because I haven't quoted C.S. Lewis for a minute, and I know that's just a huge part of our community, and I, it's probably literally been months. And... Um, I thought that this was too perfect. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis has an amazing story and he, he wrote a bunch of am amazing works, but he's best known for children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, some of you maybe read those books growing up, maybe some of you have seen the films. And in the, I think it's the seventh and the final book called The Last Battle, this is an amazing passage, and I just want to read this to you. Because C.S. Lewis is ultimately telling the story of God as he's telling the story of Narnia. And you remember that in the story of Narnia that there is this figure, Aslan, and he's a lion, and Aslan represents Jesus. He is the king. And at the end of the whole thing, this is what Lewis writes. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Creation, the fall, Abraham, Jesus, the spirit and the church, we are just living at the end of the beginning. The pain in our story is part of our story, but it's only that, it's a part. It's not the full thing, and it's not the end 
of our story. In the end of the beginning, our great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever and every, every chapter will be better than the one before. Listen, church, as Christians, we have nothing if we don't have hope. Maybe this is the one thing we really have to offer our world. Maybe hope is the one thing we as a church really have to offer our city. Maybe hope is the one thing we have to offer our neighbors and our coworkers and our students and one another. Maybe hope is the one thing we have. So how do we live in this great hope? of the story of God. If this is the story of God, if this is the narrative that these disconnected, seemingly disjointed writings that took place over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years, if those writings can come together to tell this cohesive story that leads us to Jesus, who is our hope in the end, then how do we begin to live in the great hope of the story of God? And there's just two things. One, we have to enter the story. If you want to live in hope, you have to enter the story. I want to say that again. If you don't want your life to be defined by pain and brokenness, but you want to live in hope, you must enter the story. Every one of us has a choice in this room to stick with the old story or enter the new one. That's the choice we all have. Living in the hope of Jesus is a choice. Nobody has ever entered the story by accident. We may have been wooed and we may have been saved and we may have been gripped by the power of the love of God in Jesus Christ, but we didn't choose him by accident. Listen to the beloved again. This is John in his gospel. John chapter 10, verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you that I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We enter the story by coming to and through Jesus. We choose Jesus. The second way that we live in the hope of our great story, maybe some of you have already entered uh, you've entered the story and you're longing to live in the hope that is our story not by avoiding your own pain, but by having context for it and then being pulled forward, healed by the leaves of the tree of life and nourished and flourishing because of its fruit. You long for that. How do we begin to experience the hope or the hope again of our story? Well, if, if we begin to live in hope by entering the story, we continue to live in hope by telling 
the story. I think we've forgotten with everything going on that our primary objective as followers of Jesus is to tell this story. Has anyone else forgotten? I forget. I've got a lot going on in life. I'm trying to like do a bunch of stuff and so are you. It's so easy to forget that the primary responsibility of every follower of Jesus is to tell this story. It's to tell his story. It's to tell the story of hope. And the only reason people aren't yelling amen because you're like, yeah, I think maybe I forgot that. So if we're going to live in the hope, maybe partly the reason why we're not living in the hope is because we're not telling the story. And because we're not telling the story, we're forgetting the story a little bit. We're forgetting that this is the story we live in. Story knowers become the storytellers who become the story writers. You know the story, begin to tell the story, and as you tell the story, you will be participating in the rewriting of your story and the story of the city and the story of your industry and the story of your work and of your neighbor and of your family. Story knowers become storytellers who become the story writers. Those of us who know the story of Jesus, we are the ones who get to rewrite and recreate as that army of renewal and restoration. We get to be a part of building this great city at the center of which is Jesus on his throne with streams of water and the tree of life, we get to help build that city. And the way we rebuild the city is by telling the story. And hope may be the one thing we have to offer the world. So I just ask you right now, who do you know that is struggling under the curse? I'm sure there's at least one person one person you know in your little sphere of influence and the little section of the garden that God has carved out for you to tend, there is somebody who needs to hear this story. They need to hear that their pain has a context. They need to hear about a God who moves into and toward pain. They need to hear the story about that God overcoming the causes of pain and the ultimate sort of end or punishment of pain, which is death. They need to hear that story, the story of hope. Who in your life is struggling under the curse?